0: All righty, well good morning let's uh take our Bibles this morning and open them to second Thessalonians, chapter two, and verses six and seven and I'm going to go ahead and open us in a word of prayer Father, we're grateful for not only a new year but now. Um, a, a new month of the new year. We're thankful, Lord, that you're a God of new beginnings. And we just ask that you would start us afresh this month here at Sugarland Bible Church <clears throat> as we seek to study your word and gather around the Lord's table and enjoy a fellowship meal together. Um, we just ask that your name would be lifted up and glorified today, and we pray for the illuminating ministry of the Spirit, <clears throat> which we are dependent upon, to understand not just the deeper truths of your Word, but quite frankly, any truth of your Word. And so in preparation for that ministry, we're just going to take a couple moments of silence to do personal business with you. Uh, so that we can uh, receive fully from you uh, this morning. We again, Lord, are thankful for all that you provided for us including 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. We understand, Lord, that our position is secure in you. And 1 John 1, 9 is more of a fellowship issue than a uh, position issue. But we thank you for that part of your provision for us. We do ask once again that you, you would be glorified today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. All right. Well, if you guys could locate Second Thessalonians, uh chapter two, verses six and seven. Uh thanks last week to Pastor Jim who filled in. Paul the Apostle. Had planted the church there in Thessalonica. That's the circle up north. Missionary journey number two. The unbelieving Jews were jealous of his success, and so they pushed him out of Thessalonica down south into Corinth. That's the circle below. And it's there he gets word from the Thessalonian church that he had planted that they had a lot of questions related to a lot of different subjects, but primarily eschatology, which is a really fancy word. Eschat means end, ology means the study of, the study of the end. And a lot of it was precipitated by a problem that they had. Their problem is given there in verse 2. They had uh, received a forged letter, allegedly coming from Paul, to the effect that the tribulation period had started. He makes reference to that forged letter, which we don't have anymore, unfortunately. I'd love to read some of these lost letters. There's one letter that was lost called the painful letter where he really laid into some people. And I'm like, gosh, I'd love to read that one. Uh, (laughs) I mean, the letter is called the painful letter. That one's lost too. But God in his providence allowed us to retain what was essential for our faith. But he makes reference to this forged letter in verse 2. He says that you not be quickly shaken. From your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord, the tribulation period has come. So he had taught them that they would escape the seven year tribulation period via the rapture. And then surprise, they got a letter saying, no, you haven't escaped the tribulation period Allegedly coming from Paul, you're in the tribulation period. So it was a forged letter that discredited, you know, Paul's ministry. Because if he's wrong here, you know, if he reversed himself here and did an absolute 180, um, what else could he be wrong about? So Paul writes this letter, and we're really in what I consider to be the heart of the letter, um, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, where he explains to them that they are not in the tribulation period. And what he told them earlier was, in fact, correct. So discard the forgery, which is always a good practice uh, for us as Christians. We should not embrace ideas that we can't find in the Bible. So we're always in the habit of testing all things, uh, holding fast to that which is good. Uh, it's just they didn't have much of a Bible yet. Most of the New Testament hadn't been written yet. But they had received um, apostolic teaching, and they were in this practice of needing to test things that they had heard by the the ultimate standard, apostolic teaching. And we, we have that same practice today. You shouldn't embrace things and adopt things and accept things that you can't find, well, substantiated in the Bible. It doesn't matter how charismatic the presenter is. So Paul explains that no, what I told you earlier was right and you're not in the day of the Lord or the tribulation period because if you were in the day of the Lord, you would see these five things which you're not seeing. Number one, you haven't seen the departure. And we spent a lot of time on that. I think that means the rapture. I tried to defend that view over nine lessons. And... Um, if you don't want to accept that view by this point, I can't do much more on it, on that for you. Take it or leave it. <laughs> but you haven't seen the departure or the rapture yet because you're still here. Number two, you haven't seen the desecration of the temple by the Antichrist. Verses 3 and 4, we went into that and explained that. And then the last time I was with you, he talks about the third thing, which is you have not seen the removal of the restrainer. So we pick it up there in verses 6 and 7. He says, you know what restrains him now. Now, who's the him? The him is the lawless one or the Antichrist. The Antichrist can't even make his debut onto the world scene Until the restrainer is taken away. You know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So you have not seen the restrainer removed. So the big question, of course, is who is the restrainer? And the last time I was with you, we talked through a number of options as to what people think the restrainer is. Rome, Satan, government, Michael, the archangel. I tried to make the point or the case last time that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. The restrainer is the eternally existent third member of the Godhead. He is performing a special ministry of restraint. He was doing it in Paul's day. He's doing it today. And as long as he is performing this special ministry of restraint, the lawless one, the Antichrist, can't come forward. And you might recall the three reasons why I believe this is so is number one, whoever this restrainer is, he has to be strong enough to hold back Satan's man of the hour, the Antichrist. And only an omnipotent God can do that. The Holy Spirit is deity. Uh, The Apostle Peter, when he confronted Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, when they got slain in the Spirit, Acts 5, which is not a good thing, by the way, um, where they misrepresented their level of generosity and the Lord in Acts 5, you know, killed them right there on the spot. Peter said, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And I think it's in verses 3 and 4. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. You have lied to God. So the Holy Spirit is Deity. Beyond that, the Holy Spirit has ministries in the believer, in the church, and in the world. And this is yet another one of his ministries that he's doing in the world. This ministry of restraint. And then number three, the Holy Spirit view handles really well the switch in gender in the participle restrainer from neuter verse 6, to masculine, verse 7. In in Koine Greek, it's a different gender. And pneuma is the word used for the Holy Spirit, a neuter noun. And Jesus referred often to the Holy Spirit as He, when He comes. So Uh, the Holy Spirit view would handle that, that switch in gender, and you put those three things together, and I'm somewhat convinced that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. It's just in this particular case, the Holy Spirit is being identified by his ministry. The Holy Spirit has many ministries. And here the Apostle Paul is identifying the Holy Spirit by one of his ministries, The ministry is the ministry of restraint. For example, in Romans 8 verse 6, it says, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. You'll notice there that the Holy Spirit has two ministries, life, regeneration, and number two, peace. Peace. It's just we know clearly that that's a reference to the Holy Spirit because it says the Spirit. Paul is doing the same thing in Second Thessalonians 2, verses 6 and 7. He's just identifying the Holy Spirit by what he does. He restrains evil in the sense that he holds back Satan's man of the hour, the Antichrist. And you might say to yourself, well, why doesn't um, Paul just say Holy Spirit? That would make the whole thing easier. The answer to that is in verse 5. Verse 5 comes before verses 6 and 7. Amen? Where he says, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? In other words, he is giving here a review class. He's reviewing prior information. He doesn't have to say Holy Spirit because they already knew who the Holy Spirit was and what he did. So when you review for the test at the end of the semester, you don't have to reteach the material. So we're just getting involved in the conversation on the back end of it. Paul has already laid the foundation. He doesn't have to say Holy Spirit because they knew, knew, knew that very well. They probably knew about the Holy Spirit's ministry of restraint, And he says, do you not remember that when I was with you, I was telling you these things? So he doesn't have to say Holy Spirit. He just identifies the Spirit by his ministry of restraint. So that's the part of it that we've covered so far. And let me kind of move the dial a little bit here and talk about how this perspective, if true contributes mightily to the doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture. Because Paul's point is, you're not in the tribulation period. You're going to be raptured to heaven before the tribulation period even starts. And he starts to talk about how the restrainer is here, but one day the restraint will be removed. Well, how does that whole idea contribute to the pre-tribulational rapture? So four quick things. Number one, the restrainer is holding back the Antichrist as we speak. What starts the great tribulation period? A lot of people think it's the rapture, which is not true. The rapture is a necessary prerequisite that has to happen before the tribulation period could start. But what actually is going to put God's finger on the start button and tick off the final seven years of Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks, 483 years having transpired, seven years remaining. We're living in the gap between the two. What is going to put God's finger back on the start button? And it has to do with a covenant or a treaty of some kind between the Antichrist and unbelieving Israel. The moment that treaty is entered into, you've got exactly seven years left until Jesus returns and touches down on planet Earth and establishes his kingdom for a thousand years. It says in Daniel 9.27, which outlines this seven-year period, he, that's Antichrist, We'll make a firm covenant with the many. Now, who's the many? The many is Israel. And I know the many is Israel because that's how the phrase, the many, is used a couple of chapters later in Daniel's writings. Daniel 11, verse 33. You'll see the many identified as Israel. He, that's the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Now, a week is a unit of seven. And here we're not talking about seven days. We're talking about a unit of seven years. But in the middle of the week, he, that's Antichrist, will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So you put this whole thing together, and here's what it looks like in graphic form. We have a seven-year tribulation period coming. We know what's going to start it a treaty between the Antichrist and unbelieving Israel. We know what's going to happen right in the middle, the desecration of the temple by the Antichrist. We've gone into some detail as to what that is. And we know what's going to conclude this seven-year time period, the return of Jesus to the earth to set up his thousand-year kingdom. So the whole thing starts with the Antichrist entering into a treaty of some kind with unbelieving Israel. But here's the deal. The Antichrist can't even come on the scene to do that as long as the restrainer is here. See that? Once the restrainer is taken away, then the Antichrist can show up and do his thing. So as long as the restrainer is present, Um, you can't have an Antichrist, you can't have a peace treaty, and if you don't have a peace treaty, you don't have this final seven years of Daniel's clock because that's the contingency that all of this is waiting on. See that? So number one, the restrainer is holding back the Antichrist. He was doing it in Paul's day, he's doing it today as we speak. Second bullet point is the restrainer as we've tried to argue is the omnipotent holy spirit. And then you get to this third bullet uh, bullet point and you're just asking, okay, if all of this is true, where does the holy spirit live? Bullet point number 3, the holy spirit permanently indwells all Christians. Now, It has not always been that way. The Holy Spirit is very active in the Old Testament. But beginning on the day of Pentecost, when the church was birthed, Acts chapter 2, there was a major switch in the rules through which the Holy Spirit operates. And I've tried to capture those shift of rules in this chart. And it's just a comparison pre-Acts 2, What was the Holy Spirit doing post-Acts 2? What did the Holy Spirit start to do that was different? Well, for one thing, pre-Acts chapter 2, Old Testament era, and even throughout the ministry of Jesus, the Holy Spirit came upon people. I'll show you the text in just a minute. But beginning in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit, to anybody that has trusted in the Messiah for salvation, comes inside people. That's a major shift. That's the difference between external and internal. Number two, prior to Acts chapter 2, people could get saved. And throughout the ages, you're only saved one way. Faith alone in Christ alone. It's just those Old Testament characters were looking forward, not knowing the name Jesus, saved on credit. We are looking backward, exact same principle by faith. We know His name, no longer saved on credit because the payment has been made. But throughout the ages, people are always saved the same way. Faith alone in Christ alone. Faith alone in the work of the Messiah. So in the Old Testament, you could have a situation where someone gets saved and they don't get the Holy Spirit right away. In fact, they might not even get the Holy Spirit at all. You see that in Exodus 31, verse 3, where you have these tabernacle workers. One of them is named Bezalel, and the other guy's name I I forgot, but what's the other name? Oholia? Oh, holyab, okay. So if you want to know the other guy's name, talk to Pat. She'll help you out with that. Uh, thank you for that. Um, you have these guys. They're clearly saved, but they don't get the spirit until later because the spirit comes upon them supernaturally and gives them all kinds of abilities and carpentry and artistry and all of these kinds of things to put the tabernacle together in the wilderness so they're saved initially and they don't get the holy spirit until later in our age the the general rule is the moment you trust jesus as your savior you're instantaneously indwelt by the holy spirit romans 8 verse 9 other passages In the prior age, how long did people receive the ministry of the Spirit? To a large extent, it was temporary. 1 Samuel 16, verse 14 talks about how the Spirit departed from Saul. David prayed in Psalm 51, verse 11, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. So I think I've told you before, I was in a youth group once where we had to, well, we didn't have to, we had the opportunity to sing Psalm 51, verse 11. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And I started thinking to myself, why are we singing that when it can't even happen today? Because when you look at how the Holy Spirit is operating today, once the believer is saved and the Holy Spirit comes inside of them, We call that regeneration, the impartation of divine life. He is in them forever, John 14, verse 16. So if you're looking for a verse that proves today eternal security, John 14, verse 16 is a great verse, because once the Holy Spirit is inside of you, He's in you forever. That wasn't how it was in the prior age. And then the fourth difference is who was indwelt. In the prior age, not everybody received the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there could be people saved that never experienced the Holy Spirit. That's why Joel predicted the day would come when the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. Joel two twenty eight. And that prophecy really is no big deal if everybody in the Old Testament age received the Holy Spirit. But in our age, uh, every single child of God is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So for example, over in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and verse 13, this is how the Holy Spirit operates today. It says, For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all, notice the repetition of all, made to drink of one spirit. So Old Testament age, external relationship. New Testament age, internal relationship. Old Testament age, You could receive the Holy Spirit after salvation. New Testament age, you receive the Holy Spirit immediately upon salvation. Old Testament age, you could have an experience with the Holy Spirit and then the Spirit could depart, something that can't happen in our age. Old Testament age, who was indwelt? Not everybody, not every child of God. But in our age, there's a universal indwelling. So that is a major shift in how the Holy Spirit was working. Acts 2 is the the place where everything switched. Jesus in the upper room hinted at or explained that this, this switch was coming. So here's something that could happen in the prior age. It says in 1 Samuel 16, 13 and 14... Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon. See that? Not in, but upon. External. The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward, and Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Verse 14 Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. So look at how the Holy Spirit was operating in the days of Saul, in the days of David. The Holy Spirit didn't come inside people. came upon them, typically to fulfill a task, like create the tabernacle or rule as king, etc., And then the Holy Spirit could come upon a person as they did their work, and then the Holy Spirit could be withdrawn from that person. Compare 1 Samuel 16, 13, and 14 with John 14, 16, and 17, where Jesus in the upper room told the disciples there's going to be a change. The rules are going to change. And this is where he begins to hint at how the Holy Spirit is going to be doing something different than how he has worked in prior ages, and that change is going to begin on the day of Pentecost. He says to the disciples, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he, the Spirit, may be with you forever. That was a new revelation to them because Saul and many characters in the book of Judges, for that matter, lost the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, new rules, Acts 2, that can never happen in our age. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever forever. And it's very clear who he's talking about here. He says that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him. So don't get the impression that the Holy Spirit didn't do anything in the Old Testament. He's very, very active. In fact, your first reference to the Holy Spirit is in, uh, what is it, Genesis 1 verse 2 where the Spirit was moving on the waters in anticipation of what God would do, God the Father would do, God the Son, I probably should say, in the creation week. So the Holy Spirit is very involved in the Old Testament. It's just what's going to happen is that the rules are going to shift. So Jesus here says, but you know him. So he's not saying, hey, surprise guys, we're going to have this Holy Spirit thing. And they're not, and it's not like they're sitting around saying, what, we've never heard of a Holy Spirit. They knew all about the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is the rules by which the Holy Spirit operates are about to shift. Verse 17, that is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you. External. And will be what? In you. There's the change. The change is what you know on the outside is about to come on the inside. And once he comes on the inside, he can, he can never leave you. So we truly are, it's, it's hard to completely appreciate the age that we're living in, but we're, we're living in an age of time where we have experiences with the Holy Spirit that the Old Testament characters couldn't even dream of. And it has to do with a change of rules that started in Acts 2. So this becomes the exhortation towards Christian morality. Because in 1 Corinthians 6, there's prostitution, sexual immorality, and litigation before unbelievers happening amongst the Corinthians. And if the Apostle Paul were a typical 21st century preacher, he would say, well, you guys doing this kind of stuff, you obviously are not Christians at all. Calvinism. Or he would have said, you guys involved in this kind of sin, you're obviously going to lose your salvation. Arminianism. But Paul says neither he says don 't uh, it's an it 's an educational problem first Corinthians six verse nineteen do you not know in other words, are you not aware of the switch of rules? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God, and that you are not your own he doesn't hold people 's salvation hostage because of sexual immorality and things like that, what he says is what you're doing is you're dragging the Holy Spirit into that sin. Because after all, Jesus in the upper room said the Holy Spirit is going to be inside of you forever. It's not like you can have an on-off switch. He's always in you. So if you as a Christian, if we as Christians volitionally involve ourselves in sin, we're dragging the Holy Spirit into that. And we're grieving him. That becomes the exhortation for morality in Corinth rather than holding their salvation hostage. See that? He's not saying you weren't saved. He's not saying you lost salvation. He's saying, do you not know? Don't you understand the privileges that you have? And that when you involve yourself in these practices, you just drug the the third member of the Godhead into those things. Now, personally, I find that to be a very powerful motivator for holiness because when we're tempted to sin, we just say to ourselves, well, if I do this or that or don't do this or that, I'm dragging the eternal third member of the Godhead into it. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says, however, you are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now watch this, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. In other words, today, what's normative is it's impossible for someone to be a Christian and not be born again by the Holy Spirit. You cannot have that. You're either born again, or you're not a Christian. And this is uh, a change in the way I used to think, because I used to think before I was a Christian, you know, born again Christian, I would think, well, those, there are the Methodist Christians over there, and there's the Presbyterian Christians over there, and there's the Episcopalian Christians over there, and oh yeah, there's the born again Christians over there. I looked at being born again as sort of a sect, uh, a denomination within Christianity. And what Paul is saying is if you haven't been born again, you're not a Christian. I mean, there's only one type of Christian. It doesn't matter where you go to church. You could be a method, Catha Baptarian or a bapticostal, Fundamentalist, or whatever you want to be. So going to Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in McDonald's makes you a hamburger, as the saying goes. There's only one kind of Christian. You're either born of the Spirit of God or you're not. And once a person is born of the Spirit of God, their body becomes the permanent dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. So be careful what you're doing with your body in terms of use of the tongue, morality, those kind of issues, because the Spirit of God is not leaving you, and we have the potential of grieving the Holy Spirit. You cannot lose the Holy Spirit, but you can certainly grieve Him. He is a person. He's not like a Star Wars, you know, the impersonal force. He's an actual person with feelings and emotions. Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 30, By the way, in a context dealing with bitterness and anger and unforgiveness. I mean, if you're going to be a bitter, angry, unforgiving Christian, you have the freedom to do that. But you have to understand what you're doing to the Holy Spirit who is inside of you. Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now redemption there is the future redemption of the body. So you are permanently sealed with the Holy Spirit forever. So here's sort of the the logic of understanding the restrainer as the spirit and how the spirit Understanding of it contributes to the doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture. Number one, the restrainer is holding back the Antichrist. Number two, the restrainer is the omnipotent Holy Spirit. Number three, the Holy Spirit permanently indwells all Christians. It hasn't always been that way in the prior age, but today that's the norm. Today that's the rule which means that God is using your life right now to hold back Antichrist. That becomes the explanation as to why the world hates the Christian. Satan hates the presence of the Christian on the earth. Christian martyrdoms, um, you can learn about this through a ministry called Voice of Martyrs ministries, documents, martyrdoms of Christians all over the world. And martyrdoms have, have been higher in our time period than any other time period in the last 2,000 years of church history. And that's testimony to the fact that Satan hates the Christian. Why does Satan hate the Christian? Why is the, the um, game always rigged against the Christian? Why is it that you can say whatever you want in the public square, but the moment you say Jesus quoting the Bible, all these rules are applied to you that aren't applied to others? Why is that? It's very simple. Satan hates the Christian in the world because the Christian in the world is a set of handcuffs on him, preventing him from unleashing what he's wanted to unleash for 2,000 years, his Antichrist or his man of the hour. So you might look at your life as, oh, you know, I'm not really accomplishing much in my Christian life, and, you know, our church is not a mega church, you know, there are other churches that are more important than ours, and that's nonsense thinking. Your life is highly significant because God is using you to stop Satan's masterpiece. You are an inhibitor An obstructionist, your very presence, is an obstructionist to what Satan wants to do. So if the restrainer holds back the Antichrist, and if the restrainer is the omnipotent Holy Spirit, and if the Holy Spirit permanently indwells all Christians, then in order for the seven-year tribulation period to start, The Holy Spirit's restraining ministry has to stop. Which means the containers in which the Holy Spirit permanently dwells must leave. They must, going back to verse 3, depart. But what is going to cause them to depart? The rapture of the church. See that? That's when he says, don't you remember when I was with you, I was telling you all these things? We're catching the conversation on the tail end, but they, they already had this foundation. So all spirit-indwelt Christians, and that's the only kind of Christian you can have, must first be removed prior to the Antichrist's advent. So this whole seven-year tribulation period can't even start, as long as the restrainer is here, as long as you're here. So therefore, this forged letter that you got saying you're in the tribulation period is just that. It's a false letter. It's a forged letter. Because if you were in the tribulation period, you wouldn't be here because your presence in the world is stopping the Antichrist. Who starts the tribulation period through his peace treaty with unbelieving Israel. See that? So it becomes, when you understand all of this, a great way to argue for the pre-tribulational rapture, which is the viewpoint at the top that the church has to be taken out of the way before the seven-year tribulation period can even begin. Now, I know there's some remaining questions, so I wrote down five of them. I don't know if I get, get through all these. Number one. Will the Holy Spirit be active during the tribulation period? And um, I'm looking here at my answer, and I don't think my answer is right. I said no, but the answer is yes. That's what that's what biopsies and thing like things like that do to you. So we'll have to change that. Will the Holy Spirit be active during the tribulation period? A lot of people say no, but the answer is yes. Because what they think we're saying is the Holy Spirit is going to stop working in the tribulation period. No, he's not going to stop working. His rules are just going to go back to how it was before the day of Pentecost. See that? I believe this is David in Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8. He says, where can I go from your spirit or flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So the Holy Spirit in the tribulation period is not leaving planet Earth. What is leaving planet Earth is his special ministry of restraint. That will leave. And I often think, you know, if this world is the way it is, with the restraint of God present, I mean, did you see that video of all these people kicking these police officers as they're lying on the ground? Um, If if this world is the way it is with the restraint here, what do you think it's going to be like when the restraint is gone? But once the restraint is gone, the only thing it does is it takes the handcuffs off the devil. And he allows his masterpiece, Antichrist, to come forward. But don't get the impression that somehow the Holy Spirit leaves the earth in the tribulation period. That's a um, a common misunderstanding of our view. Now this, I think, is a tribulation period passage. Mark 13, verse 11. Jesus says, when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. So those in the tribulation period will have experiences with the Holy Spirit but it will be experiences that will be on par with how the Holy Spirit operated pre-Acts 2. And it has to be that way because there are countless salvations in the tribulation period. Through the ministry of the 144,000, which is described in Revelation 7, verses 1 through 8, they will reach an innumerable multitude from all nations in the second half of the chapter. There will probably be more people saved in the tribulation period than any other time in history. So obviously the Holy Spirit has to be present or this couldn't happen. So will the Holy Spirit be active during the tribulation period? The answer is yes. Second question, should believers be politically active today? The answer is yes. Because any, every time you're politically active and you use the freedoms that God has given you to vote Bible truths, God is using that to restrain the Antichrist. See that? If America does the right thing in the next election cycle, American Christians have the ability to take Satan's new world order and postpone it. That's where you put your political activism. Um, A lot of Christian political activists are extremely confused on this because they think that their political activism is bringing in the kingdom. You can't bring in the kingdom because Jesus brings in the kingdom. But what you can do is you can slow down the progress of evil. That's why Jesus called us salt and light. Salt is a preservative in the culture. Why am I bringing this up? Because now we have all of these political activist types saying that the rapture teaching is neutralizing Christians in the area of political activism. The latest casualty in this is um, a Christian political activist named Eric Metaxas, who we we covered this on our podcast uh, this week, Pastor's Point of View, who on one of his podcasts basically went on a total rant um, against the rapture and says this doctrine is taking people out of the public square. Um, People are sitting around waiting for the rapture and they're not being involved in the political process. And so, you know, the total decline of the United States is our fault and it's the rapture's fault. Um. My daughter is homeschooled. We went to the homeschool graduation last year, although she's going to be graduating this year. Kirk Cameron was the keynote speaker. And you know you know who Kirk Cameron is. He uh, gave a good talk, and he's the one that wants to bring in uh, morality into the libraries and, and things like that. Good good ministry, good talk. He gets to the end and he starts bashing the rapture. And he starts saying to the the homeschool kids graduating, I hope you're not sitting around waiting for the rapture. You know, you need to get busy building the kingdom, basically was what he was trying to say. Eric Metaxas um, basically saying the same thing. And I'm trying to give you a model of pre-tribulationalism that acknowledges political activism. Political activism has its place, but it has its place through the church's ministry of restraint. Not through building the kingdom of God on the earth. So the moment a political activist starts talking about, we got to get out there and roll up our sleeves for the kingdom, I say, thanks but no thanks. I'm not part of that. But if they were to quote Second Thessalonians 2, verses 6 and 7... Hey, now's an opportunity to use our freedoms as Americans to further hold back Satan's man of the hour by disrupting the new world order. Sign me up for that. So there's just tons of um, confusion on this. People are trying to pit political activism against the rapture. They're trying to teach that the two doctrines... Political activism and rapture teaching are antithetical. They are not antithetical. Um, There isn't anybody in modern-day Christianity, although this person is now with the Lord, than Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer was talking about we need to bring Christ into the culture back in the 70s. And he was actually bringing Christian leaders to Brie and educating them on the fact that we as Christians can't abandon the culture. Francis Schaeffer has done more for the cause of political activism than Kurt Cameron or Eric Metaxas combined will ever do. And yet look very carefully at what Francis Schaeffer believed. He was a strong believer in the pre-tribulational rapture. He never saw the pre-tribulational rapture as a conflict with social engagement. And one of the things that the Eric Metaxases, if I'm pronouncing that right, and the Kirk Camerons of the world probably have never heard is from a man named Dr. Tim LaHaye. I was part of his... um, Pre-Trib Study Group, he's now with the Lord, going back to 2001. Wheaton College was coming up with who they thought the most influential evangelical Christian was of the 20th century. Wheaton College voted for Dr. Tim LaHaye, even above Billy Graham. Why is that? Because Tim LaHaye has had an influence in all kinds of areas of society. Uh, it was Tim LaHaye that gave David Barton the idea of reclaiming America's Christian heritage, historically. If you don't have a Tim LaHaye, you don't have a David Barton. In fact, the very first Tim LaHaye book I ever read was not a prophecy book. It was a little book called The Faith of Our Founding Fathers. Tim LaHaye's wife, Beverly LaHaye, created a national organization called the Concerned Women for America, which was the antithesis of the national organization of women, which was pro-abortion. She created a larger organization called Concerned Women for America. Tim LaHaye cr- created a Christian school system, an entire school system in the San Diego area. Tim LaHaye created what is called the uh, Christian Heritage. Um, We actually played them in basketball back when I played. They beat us, by the way, so I have a little bit of bitterness there, but I'm getting over it. It's only been 30 years. He created a whole Christian college called... Christian Heritage College. In fact, the whole um, young earth creationist movement, Henry Morris, from Henry Morris branched off um forgot the Australian guy's name that does the arc, Ken Ham. It was Tim LaHaye that gave the whole idea to Henry Morris. Tim LaHaye was very big in, in going around doing these kind of family seminars. He got into um, temperament analysis, which is something I don't fully embrace, but that's another sermon for another day. But I'm just trying to show you the influence of Tim LaHaye and why Tim LaHaye won this award, Wheaton College, over Billy Graham. Um, now, here's the, here's the thing. The moral majority, have you heard of that? if you don't have the influence of the moral majority in 1980, 1980, you don't have a Ronald Reagan. The moral majority came into existence through Jerry Falwell. Well, who gave Jerry Falwell the idea of the moral majority? Tim LaHaye. So here's my point. There isn't a man that did more to popularize rapture teaching than Tim LaHaye through his Left Behind series. Most people know Tim LaHaye through the Left Behind series, which is something that he created uh, along with uh, Jerry Jenkins later in his life. That's when I knew him. But And most people know that. What they don't know is all of these areas that Tim LaHaye had over the issue of culture. So therefore, we have to conclude that being a pre-tribulationalist does not create an abandonment of culture mentality. Eric Metaxas and Kirk Cameron are trying to take political activism and pre and they're trying to find a contradiction between the two. Well, there was no contradiction in Tim LaHaye's mind. There was no contradiction in Francis Schaeffer's mind. Because they saw their role in the culture as restraining the Antichrist, not building the kingdom. So does all of this mean that believers should not be politically active today? Should believers be politically active today? The answer would be yes. So I got that question right. You know it's getting bad when you flunk your own questions. (laughs) Will the Holy Spirit be active during the tribulation period? Yes. Should Christians be politically active today? Yes. But do it under the right banner. Don't do it as a kingdom builder. Because you're wasting your time if you're trying to build God's kingdom on the earth. What you're doing is you're an obstructionist in the progress of evil through, through your role of restraint that the Holy Spirit is using your life to frustrate what Satan wants to do, which is bring forth his new world order and bring forth his man of the hour. So people will jump all over your case. They've jumped all over my case. How could you be a pre-tribber and also be in favor of political activism? In my mind, there's no contradiction. Eric Metaxas thinks there's a contradiction. Kirk Cameron thinks there's a contradiction. Another name that you probably have never heard of, maybe you have, named Gary DeMar. He thinks there's a contradiction. But there is no contradiction. Francis Schaeffer saw no contradiction. Tim LaHaye saw no contradiction. Question number three, can we identify the Antichrist today? The answer is no. I got that one right. Why can't we identify the Antichrist today? Because our presence in the world is preventing him from coming on the scene. See that? So therefore, investing your time speculating who the Antichrist is, guessing who the Antichrist is, identifying the Antichrist is a complete and total waste of time. Because the Antichrist himself cannot even be unveiled or revealed until the church's restraint is removed via the rapture. So people in church history have always had a difficult time with this. They've all, they know an antichrist is coming and they've wanted to finger him. This was going on in the days of Irenaeus, who is just one generation removed from the apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation. Irenaeus in his Against Heresies says, we will not, however, incur the risk of pronouncing positively as to the name of the Antichrist. But if it had been necessary to announce his name plainly at the present time, it would have been spoken by him who saw the apocalypse. John. For it, the apocalypse... Was not seen long ago, but almost in our time, at the end of the reign of Domitian. So what Irenaeus is saying is, if we were supposed to be able to figure out who the Antichrist is, John would have done that for us in the book of Revelation. So there were people in the days of Irenaeus saying, this person's the Antichrist, that person's the Antichrist. Irenaeus says, knock it off. Because you can't even know who the Antichrist is until the restrainer is removed. Now, once the restrainer is removed, you'll have the best seat in the house because you'll be in heaven watching everything on the earth. Then you'll know exactly who it is. But until that happens, you can't know. And I say this because the Christians will spend an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out who the Antichrist is, which is an impossibility if the interpretation you know that I am giving here Is correct. I mean, ever since I came of age as a Christian, everybody that I hung around with always seemed very confident as to who the Antichrist is. The first president I voted for was Ronald Reagan, and everybody told me I just voted for the Antichrist. Because Ronald has six letters in it, Wilson has six letters in it, his middle name, Reagan has six letters in it. There it is. He's the Antichrist, which was disappointing because I I liked, you know, I liked Reagan. And then Gorbachev, you know, came along. He had that giant birthmark, remember? Well, that's got to be the Antichrist, the mark on the forehead. And then Saddam Hussein came on the scene. Everybody said that's the Antichrist. And then, Around, uh, I don't know, 1992, a guy named Bill Clinton showed up. He was a very good speaker. Everybody said, that's the Antichrist. And by then I had wised up. I said, he's not the Antichrist. I mean, there's no way Bill Clinton could be the Antichrist. And people said, why are you so confident? And I said, well, there's a prophecy in Daniel that said the Antichrist will not have the desire for women. <laughs> so that ru- rules out Clinton. Will the Holy Spirit be active in the tribulation period? Yes. Should Christians be politically active today? Yes. As the restrainer, but not the kingdom builder. Number three, can we identify the Antichrist today? No. And we're going to finish these next two questions next week. Assuming the rapture doesn't happen before then. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your truth, your word. Help us to... Walk circumspectly in these truths, in these last days. Help us to understand what our role is and what our role is not. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Happy intermission.